famed author Clive Cussler. The hero Dirk Pitt. The Mediterranean Caper. Episode 5. Crotch Marines. In Brooklyn, there's a funeral home in between the bars. So you got bar, funeral home, bar, funeral home, bar, funeral home. <laughs> and Convenient. Is there a connection? I don't know. So I went to one, it made me burst into tears. The guy was so concerned and gentle. And then I went to another one. And it was an older woman and she did the same thing. Dear, have a cup of tea, sit down, settle your nerves. And I just couldn't take it. I was, uh, I would cry too much. I went to the third one and the guy was like, Hey, how you doing? And he was orange and wearing Bermuda shorts. He'd clearly just gotten a spray tan because he had removed the goggles and he could see the, the space from the spray tan that would leave on the bridge of your nose. And he was mm-hmm. so cheesy. I was like, this is my guy. <laughs> <laughs> he won't make me cry. <laughs> this is my guy. He seems honest. <laughs> I feel better being here. He, he a real slap and dash kind of guy. The priest was drunk, but I think it was memorable. You mentioned that one before. <laughs> yes, he was because he was, <laughs> and he never met my mother a, a day in his life. And I'm like, "There's a priest, okay." I'm going to pay something into the chat just because I'm pretty sure you'll think it's bullshit if I just say it. But this was where we we went with my mom. Oh my god! Speaking of great names, <laughs> I would that would have been my first stop. <laughs> Also famous slash infamous here, Assman's Funeral Chapel. Although I'm pretty sure it's oh. Assman's, which doesn't sound nearly as odd if you're saying it quickly. Welcome to Cussler Hustlers, the world's first and only Clive Cussler podcast. I am your co-host Topper, here with my co-host Nancy. Hi, this is the sound of my voice. <laughs> That's the sound of his voice. There you go. And if my notes are correct, we are on episode five of Mediterranean Caper, the first Dirk Pitt book. Chapter 10 and a half-ish? I believe we start at chapter 11. We we sort of sputtered out at the end of chapter 10 last time because none of us could quite remember the the order of events. Yeah, I think I found an old quaalude in my husband's desk and we kind of went off the rails. So also, if my math is right, it's going to take us between eight and 10 episodes per book. So let's see, 25 per year. We've got 12 more years of this. (laughs) (laughs) Just to get- Both my kids will be to college. Just to- Time will free up towards the end. (laughs) (laughs) Things will just seem to fly by as each episode is just going, oh, fuck, I don't know. He's in Paris now. (laughs) Why is he naked again? (laughs) Why is there another labyrinth? Why is there a? So you can talk about the water dripping down his craggy body. It's very important for a characterization. And and leathered, leathered, weathered, craggy. He loves all those words. He got very poetic in chapters eleven through fifteen. I must say. Uh, at times, I I feel chapter eleven, which is what we're getting to now, was just sort of him saving it all up for the fight scene he's wanted to do since day one of writing this book. 
So at the end, at the end of chapter ten, they pop out of the dungeons of hopelessness or whatever it was called with Terry. The pits of hate. The pits of hate. I like mine better. Oh yeah, dungeons of despair. <laughs> Did you see? There was a new movie, eighty six, with Adam Driver. It's about. I thought it was about time travel, but he's a, from another planet. Oh, oh I guess, yeah. Uh, 65 million, I think, or 65 or. Yes. And it was like the Princess Bride. I'm like, this is, he gets caught in quicksand. There's large rodent type things that are little raptors. I'm like, that's the rats of unusual size. I saw the ad for it and thought this may be the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I can't believe Adam Driver is doing it. But then I listened to an episode of the King cast where they had the filmmakers of that movie on talking about it. And they described a very different movie from what the trailer was showing. So I'm actually kind of excited to see it. It's a fun movie. Uh, my seven-year-old son loved it. Ah, excellent. So as a family movie, it, it crossed that bound. You should tamper your expectations. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... There's not a lot of dialogue. I know. That, that's a lot of what they talked about was uh, how hard Kylo Ren was going into acting uh, without talking and working on facial stuff and body language. And obviously, they're going to wank a little bit about the the art and the craft, but it, it still sounded pretty cool. It, oh, it, it's pretty cool. It, the visual effects are awesome. I think he does go by Adam Driver when he's not being Kylo Ren. I know. I'm just really bad with names. <laughs> so I was halfway through saying Kylo Ren when I remembered Adam Driver and I just figured out I'm just going to roll with it. He's so lanky. Like Every time you see him, oh, look, he's so slender. Look at that man. <laughs> oh, so yeah, Pit of Hades. <laughs> right. We're back on the first sentence of this. It's like parking in uh, New York City, the Pit of Hades. All right. So they pop out with Terry and they're immediately held up by the tour guide who has a gun and reveals that he's a cop. And naturally... Terry was just abducted while she was taking a nap in a diaphanous see-through gown oh, yes. while napping on a sofa, and I can't say this enough, in her uncle's house. <laughs> weird, weird attire. Deeply disturbing on her part. I'm, as far as we know, the uncle, up until this point, is not that kind of uncle. Uh, so, weird costume choice. So she is tied above her head, her arms above her head, like a, like a potato sack. Mm-hmm. And she's... Where do you want to start? She was slapped on the butt by... <laughs> by uh, by uh, Zeno, Zeno. The guy with the gun. And she's trying. they're trying to convince Zeno that yada yada, local whore, let us take this woman on our way. We met her in a bar and she was going to charge us one drachma, but that was too much. Her, the the, the voice. Did you check the conversion rate on that? Was that like 50 cents? I don't know. That, <laughs> what is that, that seemed, today's money? That seemed really low. <laughs> and the guy reading the audiobook, every time he does somebody uh, speaking in a Greek accent, he does the exact same voice every time. So Dirk sounds like Zeno. <laughs> oh, so he's never read, read a child's bedtime story where roar goes the dinosaur. And the mouse in a Greek sweet, accent. Sweet. This is a Greek accent we're hearing now. It's just that sort of weird lilting. Oh, that's my Jamaican accent. This is my Jamaican accent <laughs> that you are hearing now. Yeah, man. <laughs> and that's as far as I'll go with that accent so I don't get canceled. And like everyone is thinking now, uh, the Little Mermaid, yes, naturally, Prince Eric thought his inner dialogue was a Jamaican man. <laughs> totally normal. He didn't. Under- he did not realize the lobster was sending him messages. Now I have to revisit that movie. <laughs> the Princess Bride? No, no, the, uh, the Little Mermaid? <laughs> yes, it's, you do. You do. It's very, oof. As a father, you'll be horrified. I'm well aware of that. I know uh, that the dad is just basically acting like a power-tripping alcoholic, just like screaming at his kid, breaking all of her stuff, locking her in her room. 
Normal parenting things. Yes, normal parenting. Uh, you know, letting your teenager just, you know, make drastic decisions and cut their family off and isolate and get married at 16. Also normal. Yeah. Normal parenting. Unavoidable, really. There is nothing he could have done about that situation. <laughs> Disney really just is the, the history of bad parenting and childhood trauma. But, you know, with musical numbers. Catchy ones and great animation. Loved all the bubbles. <laughs> they really brought it. They brought it for The Little Mermaid. Listeners, you can tell we're really into this chapter 11. It actually is great. It really is. And then they get, they're, they're held at gunpoint by, by Zeno. Not Zeno? I think it's just Zeno. There's no tentacles on this man. Yes. Zeno. Zeno. It's just Zeno. And he's, um, holds a gun on him, gets him in a car. Clive is, very oddly points out that the, the driver of the car, Darius, ugly goon. You can't have a good looking goon in this book. Oh, no. But the goon is dressed in an ice cream suit. Yes, I love that. Meaning he's dressed in all white. Also, yeah, this is uh, this book's really, really big henchman. Each book has one. He loves the, the really, really big henchman. Oh, who doesn't? Yeah. And I love the ice cream suit reference. In the 60s and 70s in New York City, there were ice cream truck wars where the good humor guys who were formerly, like in the 50s, good humor and ice cream truck guys would wear the ice cream suit, white suit, little black bow tie. And you're like, oh, look at that, clean and wholesome. And the roots became very lucrative. So eventually they got taken over by organized crime. And growing up as a person in the 80s and 90s, you knew if you heard an ice cream truck at 10 o'clock at night, it was selling more than just ice cream. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Neat. It, the 60s and 70s, ice cream truck men uh, were abandoning the white suits and just going for the, the hippie t-shirts and sidearms. Huh. So I, I miss the days of... Crisp ice cream suit, good humor man. Nice. I'm jealous. Of which part? More than one ice cream truck. Like, we kind of had one maybe where I was growing up, and I haven't seen one since then. Oh, they were terrible. <laughs> uh, outside of right, when we first moved in together, my husband and I, we didn't have a lot of money, so it was a fourth floor walk up, and the ice cream truck would park outside of our apartment. In the hot summer, you'd have the windows open, and it would just be the Mr. Softy theme song for three or four hours. <laughs> nice. Because they're selling ice cream at midnight. Or, you know, you go down, you get the drugs, and you finally be, <laughs> then you can finally go to sleep. Maybe it's a marketing strategy. I like it. One vanilla Xanax, please. With sprinkles. <laughs> oh, sprinkles is probably a street for something. Oh, God. Oh, I hope it is. <laughs> so, yeah, they're bundled into the car. They meet Darius. Zeno has a gun on him. And they, they leave the main road before town and they drive to an old abandoned warehouse with faded German words on it. Dun, dun, dun. They are led into a room. Darius is uh, watching them. Gordino gets separated. Pitt and Darius have a have a tough guy timeout. One very important thing happens before the fight, though. They roll up, they get out of the car, and as soon as they get out, terrified and probably about to die, Terry starts making out with dirt. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yes, the natural human response to all of the trauma that she's been in up until now, it, it makes me not trust her judgment. Yeah. I've got to say, she's got some deep issues and no no boundaries. No boundaries. And then we get Dirk's internal monologue, which uh, gives me some worries about him, which was, show a woman danger and they'll always turn on. It's a pity she's ready, but wrong time, wrong place. There's guns pointed <laughs> at him. That, that, she's ready and it's a pity. I, I know that the the male gender is supposed to be is supposed to be consumed with sex at all moments, but as a thirty something year old person, this is what he's thinking. This is not tactical. This is Dirk. <laughs> Dirk, be tactical. And we also get what I, I'm recognizing is kind of a rule of threes for Clive, 
which was the phrase, it left Pitt's heart pounding under pressure, comma, feeling constricted, comma, as though someone were holding it. That's the exact same metaphor three times, or simile. Oh, it was, it was more visceral towards the end. I got to stick up from there. It's more visceral towards the end, as if someone was holding it. It is. That's very... It, it just, it doesn't seem very inventive, because it's under pressure, also feeling constricted, also someone were holding it, like, you know, be in a vice grips, or have someone standing on it, or, I don't know, rolling under the tires of a Maybach. All of those things come to mind as my mind as well, <laughs> you know. What is... I, I like it. I... But, Vice grips, vice grips. I do the the rule of three thing myself. I just think this this needed punch up. I do the rule of eight because nobody says nobody uh, listens to a word I say in my house until I repeat <laughs> myself until I'm about to shout and cry. Do your own dishes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that never goes away. Anyway, impromptu makeout session, and then they're locked in a room with Darius. Yes, and they offer no Darius and and. Zeno offer no explanation as to why they're no god why would they they're holding them yet I mean it kind of makes sense that they didn't because they have to get orders from above but still that I feel they could have handled this better well they certainly handled it in the way that would the only outcome was violence against Darius mm-hmm. maybe they just don't like Darius very much he's ugly he only wears white they're gonna scuff his white suit now we get a properly good look at Darius who is in one paragraph described as thick barrel chested girthy massive and solid. So there's your rule of eight. Yes, rules of three, rules of eight. <laughs> Girthy, okay. <laughs> there's a, there's a bit of witty banter, and then Pitt just football tackles him. Hits a stone wall. This guy doesn't budge. Acts like he was swatting a fly away. More tackling ensues. Yeah, there's lots of Pitt flashing back to like his days playing college ball and remembering training and like remembering the words of his coach. So getting a real sports rah-rah inspirational uh, vibe going to this. Yes, lots of football terms were used. Yes. Al. Linebacker. Drop kicks Darius in the kidneys to no effect. Then he just gets him right in the testicle. <laughs> Pitt rips a board off the wall and smashes it on Darius's head and the wood shatters and he backhands Pitt. And then I love the setup for this. He flashes back to when he was a Marine, or sorry, he, he he flashes back to a Marine he got drunk with in a Honolulu bar discussing like the finer points of in- incapacitating a larger opponent and just kicks Darius in the jump. I, I think I was watching Monster Squad as a seven-year-old <laughs> when I realized that that could incapacitate, incapacitate a grown man. Wolfman's got nards? Yes! <laughs> I asked my father what that meant. <laughs> he was like, Ask your sisters. Ask your sisters, who had no idea. <laughs> Seen that movie a couple times. <laughs> so they're standing over Darius, who's on the ground grunting. They exchange some witty banter, and then the door opens, and in walks a tall, thin man with sad eyes, good teeth, and a fancy suit. And we meet Inspector Zakynthus. And really, all that was chapter eleven: a brief car ride, a football fight, some miscommunications. Oh yeah. Well, some deliberate miscommunications to get Darius hazed. Those wacky crossed wires. Because what was Darius thinking? He was like, just hold on, guys. All will be revealed. Yeah. No, let's, let's throw down. There must have... You know, they were still letting the gasoline back then. <laughs> so yeah, uh, he introduces himself... Uh, He's American. He says he can't believe anybody could possibly have beaten Darius. To even land a single blow on him is considered a great achievement. And my notes just say, Pitt and Al exchange witty banter and tell him to go fuck himself. Yes. And then um, Inspector Zach, is that Kentheus? Yeah. Okay. 
I, I'm just going to butcher that. So Inspector Zach informs them that he's proto DEA. They're on to they're on to the the old Nazi guy as a major drug smuggler and a white slaver, which was very disturbing to read. Yeah, Pitt is an absolute dick and gives Zach a hard time, gives him a fake name until he eventually breaks down and decides just to be honest. So he tells him who he is, who Al is, and who his father is. And now we get the more important backstory for the larger Custlerverse, which is that his father is Senator George Pitt of California. Yes. And luckily, um, Inspector Zach, the American, is well-versed in all the senators, apparently at all times. He's one of the famous ones, I'm sure. Oh, sure. He's like the AOC uh, of the 70s. I am sure Dirk Pitt's dad was exactly like AOC. <laughs> As Hercules Zakynthus uh, says he's with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and then Pitt's like, now we're best friends. Oh, yes. Because they're both on the side of government, and God damn it, that's the same team. That's the side of justice, man. Just. But we all know per- Dirk Pitt is a loose cannon. Mm-hmm. He doesn't always work within the confines of the rules, and he and Inspector Zach you know, spitball some ideas. And in the next chapter, Dirk is in a crate. Oh, no. You missed a bit of uh, the spitballing there. The reason they're on Von Tell right now is not because he's just a smuggler or he's just a human trafficker. It's because he is currently about to smuggle 130 tons of heroin to Chicago. Tons. Yeah. Um, this is a wacky drug. That's not that much. Drug crime we're getting to here. It's huge. But supply and demand, if that's the clientele, maybe I'm just saying, maybe the drug war. <laughs> is about to be over. <laughs> maybe the drug war was uh, ideolog- ideologically misplaced. Yeah. If there's that much demand, maybe look into that side of society instead of the uh, people supplying it. There's also some really scummy stuff with Terry. Because uh, Zach says he's pleased that Pitt has laid Terry and asks if he'll keep doing it in order t- to keep getting information out of the villa on Von Till. Like, basically keep pumping her for information. Because, you know, she's going to cooperate super good now. As she's proven, she has very good judgment and can really assess the situation. You want to take her word as as gospel. She has been kidnapped also, from her current kidnapping. She may be angry. Also, Dirk really is like, oh, he really wants it out there. I've known her for like 10 minutes and I've already laid her. Mm-hmm. Really putting that on the table. Very respectful guy. Yeah. Kiss and tell is, is his motto. Kiss and tell. <laughs> so they agree that Dirk will have custody of Terry, which is a perfectly legal thing to do for a foreign national who's been kidnapped from a kidnapping. And he says he'll keep her on the first attempt because no one would look for her there. She can't go back to Von Till because obviously she's going to say, I was just kidnapped several times and Von Till's going to know something's up. But keeping her on the first attempt will just mean that Von Till's niece just disappeared one afternoon while she was napping naked, and he's not going to react to that? They don't discuss that part. Because either way, they're basically abducting Terry and hoping Von Till doesn't notice. There was a throwaway line where he says, tell your uncle you're shopping. (laughs) Was there? Yeah, there was a throwaway line, but then they didn't seem to follow through on that, and they put her on the ship. Wouldn't surprise me because the end of the chapter is just Al returns with Zeno and a bottle of booze and everybody drinks and smokes. Yes. Because men. So manly. <clears throat> Listeners, my <laughs> co-host just drank and he's a man. So put that together. Manly. Well. 
And he's smoking up a storm. You can't see her right now. I don't feel I'm doing it in a, I, a stereotypically macho way. I'm going to hold this up for you. Uh, this is a dead frog Nanaimo bar stout. So this is... So he's, it's a cocktail <laughs> with a dead frog adorning it. Yeah. It, it's so hazy with the cigar smoke. I can barely see his chandelier. Oh, that's, that's just the forest fires. <laughs> yeah. Now we're into the weirdest chapter. Just chapter 13 drops out of nowhere. It is unlike anything before or after it. And this is what I remember. I remember the absolute most from when I read this the first time. It's just how weird this chapter is. He's floating in the box. Yes. About to hit the ship. He's about to bump into the Queen Artemisia, the ship that uh, they are positive is smuggling 130 tons of heroin. I am so glad you pronounced that and not me. <laughs> and they've searched the Artemisia at all the ports it's been in and haven't found anything. And its next stop is Chicago. So only one man can save the world. Yes, from drugs <laughs> that are inflicted upon a populace that is in no way resembling a, a market of goods and services and demand and market forces. Yes. He seems to be very under-equipped. Under He's got yeah. the the entire U.S. is in his back pocket for reserves. He's got pre-DEA. He's got NUMA. He's got, He's got the Air Force. The guys at Brady Airfield. Yeah. And he shows up with a janky flashlight and his, uh, his Speedos in a box. Oh, the scuba gear, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't sure if he actually brought... A flashlight with him. I think I might have skipped over that because I know at one point he has to steal a flashlight and then he breaks the flashlight and then he realizes that if he leaves the evidence of a broken flashlight on board, somebody will know he was there. So he has to go through this whole rigmarole for like getting rid of a broken flashlight. And all I could think of was, didn't you bring a flashlight? He did. He did. Okay. Uh, he dropped it and that's why he, the glass broke oh. on the front lens. So that's when he cleans, he gets all the, he, the only way to solve this problem on a boat is to take off your remaining piece of clothing and to wrap up the flashlight and the broken glass to muffle the light. And he's still holding on to the broken glass wrapped up against the handle of the flashlight. Makes sense. Because later he gets rid of the broken glass in the, in the ocean. Yeah. So his master plan is to hold, because you don't, you barely need hands, right? Especially in combat or like to do technical things. Yeah. So just hold broken glass in your hands while you're gallivanting around a dark ship. So I've summed up the next five pages with my own little paragraph here, which was Dirk sneaks on deck. It's too quiet, dark and quiet and still and quiet and dark. And something else was wrong, but it was just quiet and dark and quiet. And the bridge was empty and dark and quiet. And the wheelhouse was dark and empty and everything was quiet. And this is like four pages of him searching everything above water on this ship. It's 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 lifeless, like a movie set. So he's on a ghost ship. Yes, movie set. The ashtray was never used. The coffee pot was never used. It wasn't just abandoned. Nobody had ever been here in the first place. Yes, he, he does describe it very well uh, and re repetitively. Yeah. Uh, to, but yeah, for, 19, so for 1973, it's pretty sweet that this is a, a remote control cargo ship. And Dirk seems lonely. <laughs> Aww. To the depths of his soul, he feels so alone. And unseen. Yeah. But like, that's that's for the best. He's naked, holding broken glass. In a he gets into some existential light. horror in this. Like, he's terrified of, like, ghosts sneaking up on him and, like, wondering about the meaning of life the deeper he gets into this ship. Like, this is a weird horror novel. This one chapter. It It is. He has to stare into the void. And the void is staring back <laughs> into him. And 
seeing that he's only wearing a Speedo. I came up with that line. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) He takes it off every chance he gets. And then there was a noise. And then the noise faded away. And then he does more exploring. And he comes across oily rags and actual coffee cups and some uh, like half-eaten donuts. So he's found evidence of some people like way in the bottom of the ship. And I don't have notes from here to there, but like he exits the ship. He realizes he can't do anything. He has this uh, weird internal monologue about death row and then he gets the hell out of there. Yes, he felt like he was on death row. He did have an existential existential crisis in this episode, in this episode, in this chapter. I think um, maybe the senator left him in a lot of dark closets. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first senator. Oof. Or maybe Dirk is just in a dark closet. And then he jumps off the ship. His box is gone, so he's got to make it on his own back to shore. Yeah, the Artemisia lights up. Uh, the engines turn on and it lifts its anchors. And he still can't see anyone, but he bugs it the hell out of there. And this would be incredible technology in early 007 times. Yeah, and it's two more pages of him uh, getting back to shore, which is full of like long sidetracks into nautical history and shark attacks. And then something about how drugs are bad and he has to stop the drugs. On this swim, he really gets lost in himself again. And then we get the really weird beach scene. We get a real grisly recollection of a, a boy being taken apart by sharks, which is accurate. Like, if you've seen that, that's yeah. you're going to think about that every time you get in the water. And he's in the Mediterranean naked at night. As we all have been. Mm. It's just a Tuesday. I, I think uh, Clive here was really feeling out um, PTSD and its repercussions for life mm-hmm. and how it affects people. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I have to wonder, like, one, I know this is th- this is technically the second Dirk Pitt book. The first book uh, will be released later on. It didn't sell. And some horrible stuff happened to Dirk in that one. You also got to wonder, like, what happened in his life to up until now, going from, you know, son of a senator to Air Force captain to then working for a government nonprofit. Yeah, well, it's... He is very much the man of mystery, you know. His background is just big enough that you can put in whatever you need. I feel like that was a population issue. I think as a baby boomer, he could have just walked into anywhere. You know, <laughs> like your grandparents say, fill out an application. And you're an Air Force captain. Just go to Oprah, fill out an application. She'll let you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> you should sell us in the supermarket, the salad dressing. Just go go to the supermarket and fill out a form. And they'll put it on the, the, the shelf. I think it's a product of that. I think... He, you just show up somewhere, you're a senator's son, you get the job. Whatever whimsy. Yeah. But Dirk is, is is not that guy. He's eminently qualified in everything he does. Absolutely. Even football. Right up until tackling Darius. <laughs> and then uh, they have an argument about – this is where they have the argument about tactics, about how Inspector Zach is like, we're, we're only interested in stopping the drug trade, not anything else. And Dirk reveals – how he thinks this is all going down, and it is by submarine. Yes. That little submarine toy he held while he was going to dinner with his girlfriend and her very close uncle, that was foreshadowing. And the long scene on the beach of him drawing the Artemisia from memory, like room by room with a stick in the sand, like is a very long scene. And at some point, I'm pretty sure the guy who owned the donkey, he stole walked by because it's like an old man and a donkey walks by and sees the strange man on the beach and the strange naked man on the beach and they just keep going. So I think that was the donkey making a uh, a second appearance. We were all very happy. A wise decision. Sit, just move along. Also, donkeys are so hot right now. <laughs> Love donkeys. And while drawing the boat, like it then basically says, and then Dirk solved the entire mystery. <laughs> yes, and he looks back as the water, the high tide's rolling in, 
And he even adorned the the hull of the boat with an M. He makes sure that's washed away by the ocean before he ruining the evidence he left behind so he can progress off the beach. Mm-hmm. That, that's a lot of detail to put into a stick. I, that's what I thought. Was, even the branding? If it was r- even the branding. Room by oh, room? You have to put the big M on it? Just to be They've sure. They've got really fancy sand there. Well, maybe it's that kinetic sand. You can really get the detail. Ah, nice. It had multicolors. He uses Speedos <laughs> as an impromptu bottle to, to make <laughs> a knickknack for his grandma. Multicolors. Well, I can't unsee that now. <laughs> All right. Uh, I may have to let you lead this chapter because I didn't, I don't have my notes for the next chapter because I really thought these three would be more than enough. But honestly, not a lot happens in these chapters. Like they're big chapters, but each one just covers one big thing. And I just reread this, and it's just nothing in <laughs> chapter fourteen stuck. And I just read it. I know, like he's he's arguing with uh, Zakynthus. He's sending messages back and forth from Germany, but they won't tell the reader what it is. I know he's arguing with his boss at Numa. I know he's arguing with Rudy Gunn on the first attempt. Oh yes. Because, I mean, that's the actual job he's out here for. And they're still having problems with the first attempt. This is a lot of arguing. This is establishing that Dirk Pitt is a maverick who goes his own way and does what he thinks is right, even if multiple world governments are telling him not to. Yes. And we'll we'll part here. But this, I don't know, when is the earliest you think the whole maverick, loose cannon, law enforcement, or member of the military ethos started happening? Like, oh, can't the... And in cop shows in the U.S., it's like, can't the Internal Affairs Bureau get out of their way and let the cops just solve the problems, solve the crimes? Can't get, can't Rambo just be the loose cannon? I know there was a bit of that in the 70s, but it was the 80s when that really, really took off. I want to say that was like the whole Reaganomics era of action movies, which is where you've got, you know, the lone cop who bucks authority and plays by his own rules, either on the streets or in foreign countries full of insert random ethnicity here. Yeah, I think this was a little bit ahead of that. Like this doesn't quite seem like the uh the standard 70s stereotype that he's building off of because he's building off of, you know, James Bond and Indiana Jones and Alan Quartermain, which weren't quite loose cannons. They were people who knew what was up, but nobody believed them. And James Bond was always for crown and country. He yes. might James for England. He was given latitude to be the, it was his job to be the drinking womanizer, to have the martinis shake and not stir it. And you want to stir a martini. Do not shake a martini. (laughs) Stir it. He was wrong. (laughs) Yeah, he had had license to kill. But Clive Kressler is going rogue here. Mm -hmm. He's going not by the book. And good for him. He's an outlier. He did it early. He's a pioneer. And he, and he also does have a point because he wants to take down, de- well, he wants to take down Von Till for good. But the problem with taking down Von Till for good is, you know, the organization is still there and maybe he'll get off on a technicality because he wasn't arrested legally. He was beaten up by, by a man who works uh, as a scuba diver. That's a very funny sentence. So Zach <laughs> might be, might be in the right with wanting to, wanting Pitt to play along a little bit more. But, but is Dirk ever truly wrong? Oh God, no. <laughs> I'm just saying Zach has a point in this argument. Zach does have a point and there is law and order, but Zach is also like sex trafficking. Never no mind. Not my problem. Yeah. We don't care about that right now. We're just here about the heroin. Arguably, I think there should be a different order of operations. In my area a few years ago, there was an undercover cop, undercover policeman, uh, who infiltrated a motorcycle gang 
And the motorcycle gang stopped the man in traffic and pulled him out of his car. Uh, his family's in the car. And they start beating on this guy. So the undercover cop also beats on this guy for no reason, just traffic. So the guy dies in front of his family being beaten by a motorcycle gang. Ooh. And the cop had infiltrated this motorcycle gang because of the gang running drugs. The viewer or the person hearing about the story is left to wonder, isn't murder <laughs> worse than drugs? Isn't giving somebody a beatdown worse than drugs? Stop that part. Let drugs declare victory and depart the field of battle. The drugs have won. Because that implies that people on drugs are winning the war, even though I'm pretty sure the war on drugs was lost like officially 10 years ago. But now that, you know, everyone's still putting up the same slogans and the same basic fight and having no effect, which is why I'm hopeful because BC decriminalized just about everything uh, in the last few months for small amounts of drugs. And we have safe injection sites. And there's actually places downtown, uh, which are getting a lot of press right now. There's places downtown where you can buy cocaine and meth, like safe supplies. Yeah, it's not going to convince anybody to do it. But if you are doing it, yeah. at least make sure you're not getting stuff that's going to explode your brain. It's going to take a few years before they, they can have enough stats to say, you know, did this help or not? Because I, I know it helped in Portugal. I will bring up that study until the day I die. Portugal decriminalizes all drugs and they have various crimes go up for a year. And then a lot of them drop way below normal and stay there. So there's the there's the adjustment period and there's the new normal. And in this book, I, I would figure the CIA would be all over this drug shipment. Yeah. So they can drop it strategically in poor neighborhoods and control, you know, crime and how they want it enforced. Because that's the way we would operate. I don't believe in 1973 they knew the CIA was doing that. No, the Americans were the good guys in the 70s. Yeah, like they didn't find out about Iran-Contra until the mid-80s. And that was when they found out about the whole CIA running drugs thing. So there's got to be a Dirk Pitt book from like 88 that really goes into the CIA being scumbags. And I can't wait for that one. Oh, is this a... Pro, where they talk about leaving purposefully seeding drugs into black neighborhoods. Yes. You know, it has nothing to do with this book, but you should know about that because that was <laughs> fucked up. Do your research, folks. Oh, yeah. No, I've got some good history rants for the next book. I guess there's like there's two A plots in Iceberg and one of them very, very close to something that was happening like at that time in the world. And I've always wondered how close Clive Cussler was to what was going on in Chile at the time. So I'm going to save all those uh, soapbox rants for the next, well, I guess not next episode, next miniseries, the, the miniseries on Iceberg. I think he was closer because Dirk has this uh, this tit-a-tat with Inspector uh, Zenu. Is that <laughs> No, Zach. Too many Zs. <laughs> Zed. Inspector Zed or Colonel Zed, whatever, the, about how every South American scrape up was the result of this guy. And his drug enterprise, mm-hmm. Von Till, is behind every skirmish in South America and Central America. So I think that is a nod to Clive Custler being, eh, we know what's up. At the time, they knew that it was drugs that were funding all these militias and, and guerrillas. I'm not sure they knew that it was drugs organized by the CIA behind all these militias and guerrillas. But I don't doubt that there was a lot of news in the paper about how drugs are once again fueling violence in the communist South American hellscape. Oh, yes. Yeah. It would be blamed on communism. And mm-hmm. The specter of racism would have loomed heavy in any reporting in the 70s and 80s. It would have been like when bad neighborhoods have the drugs and communists. But if you were a rich person in Tribeca with cocaine, that was just an hors d'oeuvre. Cocaine's classy. Uh, so I've been told. I <laughs> uh, The 
the first time I encountered it, I saw white powder at one of my early jobs. I went to the restroom and there's white powder everywhere. First, I thought that stuff was expensive. I've worked with young, pretty girls and it's not if you get it for free. And this girl was just like, yeah, I'm on a cocaine and vodka diet. I need to lose like 20 pounds. I was scandalized. I was 21 years old and like, you're doing drugs? Oh my God. <laughs> it's an appetite suppressant. God. <laughs> oh yeah. And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, does it work? <laughs> <laughs> Where can I get some now? <laughs> In the bathroom. Right over there. <laughs> she made a mess. <laughs> Whoever she got the drugs from is probably like, like she took a fan and just, because <laughs> the bathroom was painted this deep red. So it just looked like a bomb. And <laughs> oh, she must've, it just must've exploded. <laughs> And she was sauced on the vodka. So if you're only having vodka and cocaine, you're not cleaning up your evidence. That's a very expensive sneeze. Oh, my God. <laughs> not a great coworker, actually. <laughs> but she seems so motivated approximately th- three hours of the day. <laughs> she was, and she was so thin. And she talked a lot. She's just really excited to be here. Until she wasn't. There hard come down. And then she needed a nap. And we saw her like once every three days. So <laughs> maybe drugs are bad. Maybe I'm advocating the wrong thing. People do do the rest of the drugs, not the cocaine. It's too expensive. And your girlfriend's going to waste it anyway. Heroin in moderation. Right. When she- That's the, that is the official standpoint of the Custler Hustlers podcast. Heroin in moderation. <laughs> It'll keep you thin. That's heart healthy, right? Yeah. And they actually have done studies for people that are happy. They could do heroin in moderation. And uh, withdrawal from heroin is not as bad as withdrawal from cigarettes, just regular nicotine cigarettes. I've heard that so many times too. I've known so many people who tried to quit, not heroin, but cigarettes and and couldn't. So, but the, like the, if you are economically sound and it's, it's poverty. If, If you are worried about where your next meal is coming from, where rent is coming from, your judgment is clouded on every level. Your anxiety is through the roof. And that's when you keep drug seeking if you've already if you're already in that position and you're ameliorating your uh, surroundings by drugs and alcohol you will continue to do so it's when you are economically sound and have a a safe place to fall is when addiction can be harm reduced where people can manage it mm-hmm. without abstinence but like they would social drinking is this something i advise absolutely not i'm not a doctor so just have all the drugs you want but <laughs> do your research <laughs> But be in a happy place first. Yeah. I say this on Xanax. So I'm in my happy place. I'm saying this on a dead frog beer, so I'm pretty happy too. Yes. The garnish is really visceral. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I'm not smoking. I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> He's got a martini glass, it's a dead frog, and an umbrella, so it's festive. <laughs> oh, I'm getting the tiny umbrellas next time. I'll show you. <laughs> you should. Because you have kids, it would drive them crazy. I don't care how old they are. You've got even like a a 20-something, right? Yeah. Hide them. Make every drink you have. (laughs) Have multiple umbrellas. I don't care if it's water. Do you like... They will will be driven nuts with with just greed. Why can't I have one? (laughs) I'm going to send you a comedy sketch that is part of the glue that holds together the entire country of Canada. It's a kids in the hall sketch called a girly drink drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, Ray. What about a chocolate choo-choo? It's a girl drink. Tastes like candy. Don't disappoint me, Ray. I bought, I bought like you'll understand who I was. (laughs) Oh, I see. I, I bought a couple of gross of the tiny umbrellas and drink cocktail things nice. for when my daughter was alone she w- she wouldn't drink like anything that wasn't 
a juice box. Yeah. So to like to make water appealing or just plain milk, I'm like, oh, umbrellas, <laughs> swords. Nice. Multiple umbrellas, a flower, and then it became cool to drink water. And now her teeth, oh my God, her teeth are fantastic. They, We spent like a Buick worth of money uh, on her teeth. We just went through that. And for one kid, we went through it the second time. Wait, what? Why? Why does that happen? Oh, uh, the first time was because when he was a baby, he would only go to sleep with a bottle in his mouth and only a bottle of milk. It, it couldn't even be water. So by the age okay. of about one and a half, he had rotted out almost all of his baby teeth. That's not that. That's very common. And if the baby teeth get rotted out, then that damage can spread to the adult teeth. So at the age of one and a half, he had to go under for er, for dental surgery and had a whole bunch of metal oh. teeth. And then the metal teeth, you know, start popping out when you're seven or eight, and you and you start getting your grown up teeth. Would only sleep with a bottle of milk. So just basically slow dripped acid onto his teeth and rotted all of his teeth out. And now both both younger kids have gotten through years of uh, braces. But fortunately, our dental coverage covered almost a third of it. Oh, hey. <laughs> almost a third, huh? Hooray. It's like you had a coupon. <laughs> but like the braces were only once. Like I'm not looking at braces happening again. To this no, 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 no. Okay. Horrible tooth, in- Wait, mi- tooth incident at, no, at, as a baby braces as teenagers. If they screw up their teeth Very again, well. they're on their own. Same rule with hair. I'll fix your hair once if you dyed it purple <laughs> and you don't like it. You get once. That, that's expensive. You dye your hair again. <laughs> not happening. My daughter had blue hair, green hair. I helped her. We did this whole thing. I layered it. I'm not the neatest person in the world, but I it took hours. I did these bands of- The foil? I learned how to bleach it. So she had white underneath. And yes, oh, so she had layers of color. And then she was like, okay, now I want all green. Like the next week. I'm like, it took eight <laughs> hours to do a rainbow I, in your hair. I ain't doing this again. <laughs> then she did. And then like three months later, she's like, oh, I like my natural color. I'm going to go back to natural. I'm like, bitch. You got to wait. I had never called her that before. I'm like, you fine. We'll get you back to normal. But anything else. <laughs> and she's like, that's okay. I'll call grandma. <laughs> that's fair. They got us over a barrel. This has been Custler Hustlers. Your hosts have been Topper and Nancy. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Custler Hustlers. Hustlers.